Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source for news, interviews and comment on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence, brought to you by TCT Magazine. I'm your host, Sam Davis, and today I'm bringing you the latest episode of our executive interview series. This time, the focus is on additively manufactured rockets, as we sit down with Scott Van Vliet, the SVP of Additive and Software Engineering at Relativity Space. Relativity Space was founded in 2016 by Tim Ellis and Jordan Newt, who had worked with 3D printing technology while interning at other leading space companies. In their mid-twenties, the pair decided to set up their own private space firm, placing a substantial focus on the utilisation of 3D printing to produce their launch vehicles. With the Stargate 3D printing cell, Relativity has made significant headway in its bid to additively manufacture rockets that can facilitate space exploration. In recent months, the company has secured an agreement with OneWeb to launch satellites into low Earth orbit, and an agreement with Impulse Space to launch its Mars cruise vehicle and Mars lander into trans-Mars injection orbit, in what could be the first successful delivery of a commercial payload to another planet. Van Vliet joined the company at the start of 2022, and in this episode, he provides insight into the company's use of 3D printing, the rest of its manufacturing workflow, and what motivates the company to do what it does. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more additive insight, head on over to tstmagazine.com, where you can subscribe to the print edition of TCT Magazine and our weekly additive insight newsletter for free. Scott, welcome to the Additive Insight podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks you for having me on the on the podcast. No worries at all. So, as I understand it, Scott, you joined uh, the Relativity team at the start of this year, um, having previously worked for the likes of Microsoft and Amazon. Can you tell us how the role at Relativity for you came about? Absolutely. I um, I was actually spending uh, the last uh, four years prior to Relativity working at Microsoft and on a product called Microsoft Teams, uh, which is a product like similar to the one we're using now, mm-hmm. and, you know, connects people around the world and had an incredible mission and surge during this pandemic to keep everyone kind of connected uh, while we were all stuck working or learning from home. So I was very purpose-driven on the work I was doing there. And I received a phone call uh, one day in the summer of last year uh, from an executive recruiter friend of mine. Uh, her name is Jerry she uh, told me about this opportunity at Relativity Space. Now I'd seen the Veritasium video and you know, I'd seen some of the things out there you know, about the company. And my first response is, why would they want me, <laughs> right? Why, why, why would they be interested in me? And, uh, and Jerry uh, said, well, why don't you just come and talk to Tim? They're looking for you know, a software leader to come help scale what they're calling the factory operating system. So I, uh, even though I was very excited about the work I was doing at Microsoft, I was very keen on learning what Relativity Space is up to and, and kind of what this uh, you know, meeting was all about. Ended up having a call with Tim and it was just a wonderful experience. We talked about the future, we talked about Mars, we talked about movies, we talked about romances and movies and, and storytelling. And we also talked about you know, uh, 3D printing. Um, and it was an opportunity that just blew my mind, right? Like, oh my gosh, this, this company, is actually 3D printing rockets, and they have the ambitions to build an industrial base. So long story long, uh, after that call, I still had that, like, why would they want me? Like, how do I fit into this world? And uh, and they invited me to come down and meet with uh, Zach Dunn, who is my now counterpart on the, on the vehicle and engineering and manufacturing side, uh, and, and Tim, and say, hey, just come for a tour of the factory. Uh, and that's kind of one of those very dangerous, uh, in a positive way, opportunities to come in and see a factory of the future. So again, I relented to come down, met with Tim and Zach, 
spent about three hours together touring the factory, asking questions, whiteboarding about opportunities. And I remember very vividly leaving that call, having no intention of actually moving out of my, my job at Microsoft that I, I actually loved um, and talking to the recruiter. And she said, how'd it go? And I said, I hate you. She goes, what I do? I'm like, I hate you. I'm like, you can't take a kid to a candy store and tell him he can't have any, right? And it was just this, this amazing opportunity where the intersection of software and software concepts like iterative design, you know, kind of, um, you know, scaled um, iterative learning and machine learning, um, coupled with a hardware world uh, where we could iterate on designs and concepts. And to me, uh, that really struck every chord of, of interest in my personal life, as well as in my professional life. Uh, and I was very fortunate that, that I got the offer to join Relativity and lead, uh, lead this additive and software team. Okay, so you, you mentioned that, you know, you admitted that you were happy in your previous role um, and perhaps you were, I guess, curious, but not necessarily thinking you're going you're gonna to take the role at Relativity. This is probably the first of many stupid questions I'm going to ask, but what then attracted you to, you know, actually take up the position and, and make that move, particularly when, you know, in terms of, I guess, the industry you're operating in, it's quite a departure from the world of Microsoft and Amazon. That's right. So, um, you know, I was at Microsoft and Amazon most recently. So, and at Microsoft, I was focused primarily on software products. And um, when I was at Amazon, um, I worked on a varying level of products that included physical hardware. So Fire TV, Fire TV Stick, um, Amazon Echo family of devices and accessories. So I had experience building, you know, millions of units of products and, and actually spending time in China, working with our partners there in developing, you know, kind of at scale production uh, manufacturing using traditional fixed tooling and systems. And prior to my time at Amazon, I was actually with a company called Mattel. Uh, they're known for Barbie and Hot Wheels and you know other types of brands. And I, I ran uh, multiple roles there as a CTO, but also as a VP of digital play, where we took physical products and kind of connected them with uh, the play experience. So again, in that environment, dealing with high turnover of SKUs, you know, a company like Mattel across their brands, including Fisher-Price and American Girl and mega brands, they're doing thousands of unique SKUs every year that turnover. And so incredible amounts of complexity that go into building fixed tooling infrastructure, fixed lines of systems. I had a lot of experience around uh, what is very difficult to do, very costly to set up and, and you know, has a lot of um, kind of a waterfall schedule. At Mattel, what I also had the experience with was 3D printing. Now at the time, so circa 2010, Mattel were spending a lot of time um, leveraging and had leveraged SLA technologies from Z Corp or 3D Systems and from Object to do ton of prototyping, right? So you want to create a new Hot Wheels toy or a new Barbie doll or a new type of action figure for Batman or whatever it was, um, you would sculpt it in 3D and then actually print it in resin and SLA. You'd print it in you know, some of these other polymer-based uh, you know, printing technologies, and then you would create molds from it, cast, and, and kind of um, come up with those prototypical examples. And I was mesmerized that was really my first exposure to, to additive manufacturing in, in the form of 3D printing and very specifically stereolithography. Um, and I, I, I became so enthralled with it. And then one of my partners, Paul King, who was on the design side said, Scott, the patents for FDM, refused deposition modeling, had actually expired. And there was this huge explosion circa 2008 around RepRap, uh, right? You know, again, with Prusa and all these you know, new uh, devices that were making the scene. And he said, I think we could probably build something like this for toys. And so I got enthralled with kind of the hobbyist side of 3D printing. 
Um, I dove deep into concepting things like what would a Hot Wheels car maker look like? What would a Barbie accessory printer um, look like? Um, and so started prototyping with my team many of these different concepts and realized that the power of additive manufacturing is actually unlocked when you have incredible software. And so if you look at somebody like Autodesk, uh, who had created, you know, um, one, two, three design, uh, you know, uh, one, two, three D design and other types of tools where they acquired Tinkercad, like the idea of really simple concepting to come up with a, 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 an idea and then turn that into a print to me satisfied that play pattern of, okay, a kid being very creative, let's say on an iPad, and then turning that into a toy that they could print, you know, a couple of hours later. So I got very deep in the manufacturing of, you know, um, hobbyist designs of 3D systems, um, or 3D, um, specifically polymer PLA-based printers. Also looked at other materials for play, uh, including edible materials and things like that. Um, and then realized that, you know, getting an understanding of how slicers worked and how that slicer technology could be applied to work on, uh, you know, less expensive systems um, that didn't require a lot of CPU horsepower to do slicing and do rapidly, to translate that into G-code and other types of instruction sets. So I got very, very deep into that world circa 2011. Um, and the economics in that point didn't necessarily work, right? You know, you see Creelty and other players today make very inexpensive kit, right? You can get for 150 bucks, a pretty dang good PLA printer, uh, you know, with a self-leveling, <laughs> you know, things that you wouldn't imagine 10 years ago that you could get in the world of, of, of 3D printing. Um, but at the time for us, if you look at a toy, you have to take the bomb cost of that toy or what we call X factory, leaving the factory and say, five times that is your retail pricing. So if you get a $120 bomb for a 3D printer, you're like, this is great. That's a $600 toy, right? So, so at the time, the economics and the, um, the market didn't pan out, but I nevertheless became very interested in what the power of additive manufacturing, 3D printing, and software together especially on the design and the creative side could unlock uh, for, in this case, the imagination of kids. Mm -hmm. And so then I, I kind of fast forward to this opportunity at Relativity. And, and again, my friend who is a recruiter uh, who I've known for years knew about my experience at Mattel. And I think that's also why she kind of pulled me in was that, oh, I know Scott's super passionate about 3D printing um, and obviously has had experience scaling large software teams and large software systems that this marriage might be the perfect match. And so when I started talking with, you know, Zach and, and, uh, and Tim and, and David Giger and other folks at Relativity, it wasn't just, hey, I'm a software person that can just, you know, um, come in and, and build software. It was somebody I was very passionate about what additive manufacturing could unlock, that I understood some of the complexities of geometries and support structures. Again, coming from a polymer basis, you know, there's obviously a lot of differences in powder bed fusion and wire arc additive and the other types of, of things that we do today. But there's a lot of similarities in terms of, of angles and attack and design principles that you can achieve. So between Mattel and Relativity, had you maintained an, an interest in 3D printing and were you keeping an eye on the development of the technology? 100%. Yeah. So um, in my experience at, at Amazon, we also use 3D printing heavily for prototyping and concepting. Mm -hmm. um, and that includes for um, you know, physical products, you know, again, the form factor of a gaming controller takes many variations. And so printing in ABS and PLA, you know, prototypes, even printing in resin uh, was a super important aspect for us. But in many cases, you know, yeah, we could use uh, Shapeways or some other company to go and print those parts for us, which we definitely did. Um, but also saying, okay, we need resin printers in-house. And then obviously just seeing, okay, you know, going from, 
you know, more very expensive, uh, you know, uh, SLA machines and, and um, uh, resin printers to, you know, the DLP based printers that mm -hmm. actually work pretty dang well. Um, we actually brought a lot of that stuff in-house and continue to stay focused on rapid prototyping and rapid development. And I always had this idea of like, well, how could this service work even for my time at Amazon? Like, how could we dynamically print, you know, um, products like phone cases or something like that? Like, what are the things that you can do? And again, I think uh, there's like this sweet spot of additive manufacturing between, you know, if you're going to make 100,000 units of something uh, that is the same thing and has the same specs, fixed tooling makes a lot of sense, right? But if you're building small quantities where um, there's unique value proposition, customization, specific materials or other characteristics we can talk about as we go on, um, that actually make it very interesting and dynamic. So I kind of followed it along uh, on the way, um, somewhat with envy uh, that I wasn't playing in that world, to be mm -hmm. honest, like, you know, the things that I was doing, but definitely as a, as a hobbyist and as a professional, uh, paid close attention to it. When you stepped through the door at Relativity um, on that, I guess, initial tour and then and then when you'd taken the job, what was your early impressions of the, the work that Relativity was doing and specifically the way it was applying 3D printing technology? Yeah, I think um, a big part of me was was um, overwhelmed and excited um, because, if, again, if you've seen you know, tours of our factory or you've, you've heard from Tim in, in previous you know, podcasts or, or interviews, um, relativity is seen as a, a 3D printing company and is seen as a rocket company, but it's actually far more than that. It is a manufacturing platform with additive at its core, um, but it is a very complicated end-to-end -end manufacturing and fabrication platform. Uh, and so that was, I think, the, the most um, uh, interesting thing for me as I came in is that when I looked at everything we were doing, um, it was combining kind of the full end-to-end -end life cycle of product development from, you know, literally commodities management and supply chain management and, and looking at where we're getting materials from to min materials management to obviously the, the, the printing and, and additive sides of it, um, but then also integration assembly, the incredible amount of testing. I'll tell you, that's the one thing that really surprised me was how rich in, in the infrastructure is at Relativity for uh, materials characterization, for qualification of parts and structures, for the qualification of the vehicle's performance, um, like the maturity of the company in terms of, of not just YOLOing stuff, but, but uh, you know, literally having, you know, a world-class, um, you know, quality team and, you know, kind of a testing infrastructure and a discipline, that was also very surprising to me. Um, and that what was also really cool was the fact that software powered so much of what we've, we've done already, right? Um, that it wasn't something where, you know, um, don't get me wrong, like we still have areas where we're tracking stuff in spreadsheets and, you know, we're still doing, you know, some, some manual effort. Um, but the idea, and I think this comes from Tim and Jordan, our co-founders very early on, was that software is a critical unlock for the world of aerospace and additive manufacturing is the software of hardware in, in, in a way, right? And so, so that is kind of imbued in everything we're doing. Um, the other things that got me um, kind of really excited was, how advanced the software teams had come along, especially on things like, so, so the teams that I, I run are responsible for, um, on the software side, I should say, of the teams I run, um, the additive platform, the data science and, and um, data engineering and infrastructure, which is a critical part of it, um, but then also flight software, uh, you know, uh, all of the, the firmware that runs on our vehicles as well as on our robots, that's all kind of within the team. 
and the sophistication with which the team orchestrated hardware and software interfacing for our robots and our printers and those systems also translated to value creation for how we command and control our vehicle, right? So, so again, I just returned from Cape Canaveral in Florida where we're getting ready to, to launch our vehicle in the, in the coming months here of, you know, the world's first 3D printed vehicle, really excited about that. Um, and, and just watching the sophistication and the, and the tool chain that we're using for flight and knowing that as I came back to, to California this week, um, that same tool chain is, is, is powering the data infrastructure, for example, uh, of our printing system. So, so seeing how advanced we'd come uh, was actually a, a pretty big surprise for me, knowing how relatively small uh, the company is from a software engineering perspective. You know, I mm. had thousands of software engineers on my team before to having, you know, a couple hundred here. Uh, it's a very different scale, but they've achieved so much. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I guess, I don't know when the company was founded, you'll be able to tell me, but they've been going for a few years. And obviously there's, you know, the launch um, to come of the first uh, 3D printed rocket. That is obviously quite an ambitious target. And then when you look deeper, you know, you see um, ideas are going from raw material to flight in 60 days, um, going from a 100,000 part count to a part count of less than 1,000. And all of this powered by, you know, the technologies that you've you've talked about throughout this episode. So in, I guess in terms of the AM element, how does relativity make that work and make that feasible to, to print a rocket? Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, it's an incredible aspiration we have to get from raw material to rock around the pad in 60 days, right? Um, and a lot of that comes from, um, you might call it a fully integrated process, even though we leverage partners and, and have, have suppliers and, and things. Um, but when we mean fully integrated process, it really is that factory oper operating system. That's kind of the, the tagline that you've heard from Tim uh, before, our CEO, and, and that I've been uh, kind of focused on, on helping build out. And it's the idea that we have traceability throughout the entire stack as we build our vehicles and build our products, that we understand you know, deeply understand the materials that we're bringing in, like not only where they've come from, uh, but also, you know, material science is part of our additive manufacturing process. It's not just, hey, we go buy powder from someone or we go buy a wire from someone and then we just kind of run with it. We develop many of our own alloys, including the alloys we use for the primary structures of our vehicle. And of course, we use industry standard aerospace alloys like variations of Inconel and, and other types of materials. Um, but the process we go through is we're actually having full traceability of that throughout the stack that we understand when we're printing a part, where does that material come from? Which lot did it come from? We're tracking all of the various different pieces of um, data that's coming off of our machine. So current voltage, other types of things, ambient air pressure, air temperature, I should say, um, and barometric pressure um, in, in the cells. Now I share that with you because that integrated part, I'm uh, no, sorry, the integrated process is also um, kind of uh, upstream in the design process, right? So not only are we building our additive platform to meet the needs of the designs of our vehicles and products, but we're actually designing our vehicles and products for additive. You know, it's, it's things as kind of basic as, hey, you know, printing, um, in, let's say, for example, on a powder bed fusion printer, if you're printing, you know, a circle interface, you know, on the, on the side of the, the part, that's kind of hard to do without kind of tearing another type of artifacts. So we typically don't print um, either at 90 degrees or we print different types of shapes. So we might print a tear duct or other types of shapes to get us the same type of interface, 
but we don't actually have the, the characteristics of additives. So that's something that we then take into the design of all of our interfaces and say, how do we actually design an interface that can perform um, without too much machining or even any machining at all uh, or post-processing to that part um, so that, that when we're designing vehicles, we're doing it for additive. So that also kind of flows into this ecosystem of end-to-end of -end, and we, we track that in our PLM system so we understand design revisions and what we're doing. And there's a whole host of those type of, of design considerations we make. And one thing I'll also say is we're obviously an additive manufacturing company at our soul, um, but we also um, we also do uh, you know lots of integration work. We do you know assembly of our avionics um, harnesses and our avionics components, and so there's much more to relativity than just an additive side. Um, even though you know by volume uh, or sorry by mass, you know uh, Terran One is 85% printed, uh, which is incredible. Um, but there are components that we will machine and that we will mill or that we will acquire because it just makes economic sense, you know? Um, so for example, buying bolts, um, we could 3D print Inconel bolts. Uh, we could, uh, you know, machine them ourselves and do things like that. Um, but buying them for the supplier just kind of makes sense for those interfaces. And so um, there's a lot of um, what I'd say is, is practical uh, aspects of the manufacturing side because so many people at Relativity come from the world of aerospace and come from the world of, of rockets that they've seen what um, you know a fully integrated um, you know traditional manufacturing process looks like, and they've seen the creativity that can come from our additive stack, and they're able to determine, oh yeah, like I can see a ton of value if we could you know create an additive component here because we that approach gives us the capability to unlock design creativity, or we can print faster or print more complex structures, but you know for areas that make the most sense for just again sourcing parts or or machining a, a cover or something like that, you know, we, uh, we certainly take that approach. Um, but the goal for us really is less about whether it's 100,000 to 1,000. It's really about the pathway of reduction, right? You know, so can we create, you know, simplicity in design so that then we've eliminated a part? Um, can we, instead of having an interface between two parts, can we get a larger print envelope so we can actually print it in the single part? You'll see that in our Aeon 1 engines, um, you know, between... Uh, you know, the vehicles, uh, I'm sorry, the engines that are on our flight vehicle today versus the engines we're manufacturing for our second flight vehicle, which is in process right now. Um, those are things that we can do as a result of the improvements to our factory, the, the additional capabilities of our additive manufacturing tech. And so again, I think for us, our commitment is super high uh, on, on additive um, and we leverage and scale the learning we get from it with each attempt. Today's episode is sponsored by Nexa3D. Here, Michael Curry, Vice President and General Manager for Nexa3D's Desktop Business Unit, discusses ultra-fast printing on the desktop with the zip, the benefits of open versus closed material systems, and creating sustainable 3D printers and consumables. So people, once they get a technology that is four to, to, to eight times faster, you see this really big behavior shift where people don't go back. You had people that were would go to Blockbuster or other rental uh, locations and get videos. You know, they might wait wait a week to get uh, a video in stock. Then along came Netflix and kind of disrupted that with on-demand CDs. And then, of course, Netflix then got disrupted by, say, iTunes from Apple, 
and then Netflix disrupted again with the idea of, of true streaming. So you don't see people who are streaming now going back and asking for uh, a cheaper overnight download from iTunes. Like that's that's not the market anymore. And so we're seeing the same thing for 3D printers. Once you experience a much faster speed, it makes it very difficult for you to want to go back to a slower speed. Uh, so as an example, we just uh, had a client who just received the zip and he did a side-by-side -side print on another very common SLA desktop printer in the market. Uh, the print that he traditionally would do took him five hours. The one he did on the zip took him 45 minutes. So that's a seven times improvement. And what that means for him is that you know he can now print by the hour each day, uh, whereas before he might do one print in the morning and then kick off an overnight print. So his productivity is gonna be dramatically in increased. Or if you're trying to do a bit of a batch production of, of parts, you'll be able to get that many more batches done in a, in a given period of time. So I think that once people see that and experience that, it's going to be very difficult to go back to a, a, a slower process. Can you talk about the materials that Zip uses in regards to open versus closed material systems? So the Zip in itself is an open uh, platform for material development. We are really taking a close look at the various material providers in the marketplace, and we're curating and finding what we think are like really good materials. And then we will validate those and in some cases also uh, bring them into our platform and, and resell them. And we, you kind of get our stamp of approval that, hey, we think this is a really good resin. It's superior to its peers in terms of performance or some other aspect, maybe price, uh, value. And we'll make those next and branded. But then our systems are also open. So if you want to go ahead and, and find a resin that you prefer or a color that you need, we also have an open system where you can unlock all the same controls that our internal process team uses to develop resins. I understand that another way the, the ZIP has been built is to really consider sustainability. How does the ZIP ecosystem address this? A lot of people complain in the desktop space around the amount of waste that's generated. I think mm. people in the industrial setting, maybe they, 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 they know that waste is a byproduct, but I think at the desktop, when you're using a printer as an individual, it maybe come, might come as a bit of a surprise. So the one thing that, the well, two things we're doing in terms of our resin management, uh, we are using aluminum uh, bottles that uh, they themselves can be made from recycled material or they can also be recycled themselves after use. We also have the ability to refill them. And then the second one is in our vat system. So we have an interchangeable membrane and, and a solid metal vat. So when your membrane, uh, exceeds its life or maybe has a puncture or something like that, you can just simply unsnap the membrane and dispose of that and snap a new membrane in. And that that's a really big uh, improvement um, compared to some of the other systems where you're basically throwing away the entire vat. And that's a lot of uh, energy that you're throwing away in that process. Uh, so those are the two things around resin management. And then I guess lastly, the zip itself, uh, we chose to make it an all metal machine. Um, many desktop class machines are made out of plastic. So we're kind of making this sturdy, robust, rigid system. And then our goal in the future is to uh, make modular enhancements to that core. So you, you, don't, you don't end up throwing away your printer just because you want to upgrade its internal components. For more information, visit nexa3d.com.
Okay, in terms of part consolidation, obviously there's you know plenty of benefits to um, taking the the part count down to kind of create a, a system regardless of what it's doing in in the vehicle. But in the event that something goes wrong with with that system that is being consolidated into one part, is that a complication then to replace it? And does that come into the consideration? Because if one aspect of that or one element of that system um, is faulty, you have to replace the whole system as opposed to a single component. That's right. Yeah. So, so it's it's actually um, a, a very uh, relevant and salient point because we've had a lot of conversations about that. Um, and and what's super interesting is we can take that into account in the design. Let's say, for example, you have a manifold that you're building, and it's got to have ten different valves. And each one of those valves is its own assembly that then gets fitted into a manifold itself, and then that manifold plus those valves is assembled. Well, now you have, 11, I'm just going to make it up, but 11 parts, including the manifold itself of those 10 valves, you have all the different fittings and fixtures and points of failure on that part. Whereas if you actually just printed that as a single manifold with the valves inside or the valve housings inside, you could have one part. Well, what happens if one you know, housing or one valve fails? So you have to replace the entire thing. Well, we've actually been thinking about that in the design and said, for simplicity's sake, how do we make it so that if we build that single manifold, it is replaceable, almost like a Lego block, so that you can actually take that entire manifold out with um, relative ease, replace the manifold, and then actually repair uh, the part on the side. Because for us, especially in the world of, of additive that, that we're working on, we can easily discard parts, um, but we're also thinking about repairability into the design itself so that, yes, we can um, create more simplicity in part count, but we're not losing the agility of replacement and you know the ability to, to retrofit or to repair parts so it is again part of that formula there's no right answer wrong answer you know because you can go on one side of the equation is have complete replaceability so everything is part but then you just introduce tons of failure modes and lots of complexity um, and lots of challenges certifying your product or qualifying your product for launch uh, in our case uh, when you have more parts mm. in terms of the the kind of the manufacture of of the rockets can you provide some insight into the, the kind of the volumes and the rate at which relative to producing um, the, the Terran rockets, I would assume it's kind of on demand, but what's the kind of scope and what's the, like, I guess the backlog and how do you, how do you manage the, the demand and, you know, versus the supply? Yeah, it's a, it's a really great point. Um, I think part of it is um, it, it has an impact on how many printers do we buy? How much material do we buy and when do we buy it? You know, um, what is tack time for a part end to end um, and tack time for a vehicle or a sub-assembly end to end? Um, you know, what do we look at availability of our printers and then utilization rates of our printers? And what I'll say is for Stargate, Stargate is actually more than just a printer. Stargate is, is a build cell, if you will, because today, if you look at, you know, one of our Stargate printers, which is our wire arc additive systems, um, you'll see the end effector torch on it where we can basically lay down you know, beads of metal and print. You can also replace that head. So we've actually made it interchangeable so you can put a machining head on and actually do you know, um, machining operations in that cell. So you can machine down interfaces, you can cut out holes, you can you know, uh, machine surfaces, you can do lots of different things. And we also can put on radio imaging and other types of attachments to that, that printer. And so when we think about print time, um, you could improve. You can improve your rate of deposition, for example, which is a metric that we follow. But that the full tack time is actually inclusive of in situ monitoring while you're printing, 
of uh, machining or surfacing that part for interfacing or joining later, as well as doing uh, quality imaging, you know, in situ or post-process while it's in the cell. So there's all of these, um, you know, kind of factors that go into our kind of our, our shop floor planning uh, system for lack of a better term. Um, but we do look at the rate of improvement between, you know, how much metal we can deposit per hour um, or kg per hour, um, and then how do we increase that? And so we're on, uh, I think, um, that will be our quest probably for a long time, but I do think it's asymptotic. Um, so for example, if you look at Terran 1 Mission 1 today, the time it took us to print that versus the time we're printing Terran 1 Mission 2 has been reduced by about 30%. And the time that it will take us to print Terran 2 Mission, or sorry, Terran 1 Mission 3 is a reduction of about 70%. So we see incredible growth. And some of that comes from, hey, we've changed the chemistry of our materials so that we can actually print hotter or print faster because we can deposit more metal. And so we'll see multipliers of rate um, in deposition based on chemistry alone. We've also looked at other ways of affecting, um, you know, the, the, the feeds and speeds of the motors and systems to where we can maximize um, the rate of deposition without introducing too much porosity, for example, or, or too many perturbations in, in the material as it's laid down. And so these are all things that we actually use software Again, as I go back to the software play, we actually use software to both simulate the behaviors of the materials and the printers, but then also try to come up with a prediction of what we think will happen. Um, and we, because we're collecting all the data off the printers, we can inform those hypotheses, apply them in the lab. So we do have scaled versions of Stargate um, that are smaller um, you know, print surfaces so we can print faster for the prototyping uh, and actually prove it out uh, on the machine before we actually go and, and occupy time on the printer. So for us, obviously, uh, we intend to continue to increase the deposition rate. Um, and we also think of ways in which, well, how can we do multiple operations on a part at the same time, for example? There's lots of ways of, of, of how we're thinking about this that um, uh, I'm excited to share in, in the coming months as, as uh, we start unveiling some more aspects of our next version of Stargate. Mm. I don't know um, how much you can tell us about specific applications and, and so on. Um, and maybe it's too difficult a question to ask, but I, I was interested to know what your kind of favorite application um, was at relatively, or, or one that at least, you know, demonstrates the level um, that, you, that you guys are operating at with additive technology. Yeah. So I think one of my favorite parts that I've seen us make, it's about 16 feet in diameter that we've printed. But one of the things that, that um, obviously we have to solve for in our additive process is to say, hey, if we're going to print a barrel uh, and we take the ASCADed barrel and we just start printing it, all those residual stresses and compressive forces are actually going to bring it in on itself, right? So instead of printing a barrel, you're going to print a cone. And so what we do is we do compensation modeling, we do FEMAP analysis or FE analysis and um, other types of software that we built where we can actually go and compensate the model so we can print offset and then it basically, you know, because of those stresses, it brings it back down. But when you start printing objects which are not linear like that, that have different features and characteristics, it becomes far more complicated um, to compensate for those, especially considering, you know, the, 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 the cooling and the relative annealing of those parts over time. And so for us, um, when we thought about building a much larger structure, like for Terran R, which was a 16 feet diameter vehicle at the time, um, on a 90 inch build plate, you basically have to figure out how do I print something that is going to be the math, the majority of the mass is going to overhang the build plate. And so how do I print a structure layer by layer through welding that actually pulls that out? 
And so we started with various different techniques of how do we print out, how do we build support structures inside, like let's say, uh, you know, kind of ribs to, to, to pull it back out. And you just end up with metal falling over onto the ground, just pools of metal. And so what the team did was took a step back and said, well, how can we be inspired in other ways? And they looked to nature. Um, and so we built this design, which looks like a seashell or a clamshell, uh, where it's kind of a wavy architecture. And that waving in, uh, in nature creates a lot of strength and rigidity to a clamshell. And so the team came up with a way to, to, to design, you know, kind of procedurally um, a bottom of a dome structure. And we had to print it. And we figured out a way to print it on a 90-inch, uh, you know, build plate and build surface. It was not easy. I talked to the team that actually were there doing it and, you know, doing things like a cutback on that part was rather difficult, especially when it's not a linear cutback. And, and, and it was a, a lot of, uh, I think, fun stories uh, from, the, from the trenches, as it were, uh, of the team. But to me, what was really exciting was how it worked um, because we were able to learn and determine so much about the entropy that's introduced when you're moving a weld bead around, especially at different um, not just, you know, uh, vertically, but also vertically and horizontally as you're moving a, a weld head. Um, and, and to me, it just showed the inspiration that can be achieved when we, we put our minds towards what, what non-traditional things can be done because of additive. So that's probably my favorite uh, application of it. Mm, yeah, no, that, that sounds really cool. Um, if, if I can, I'd like to touch on um, some news that was announced recently, the partnership, I guess, with Impulse Space and, and launching their Mars cruise vehicle and Mars lander into trans-Mars injection orbit. Um, so just to recap for the listeners, that's a partnership due to run um, until 2029 at least with the anticipated launch window coming as early as 2024 and it could be the first commercial payload delivery to the surface of another planet. So I assume you're all very excited about that partnership um, at Relativity, but can you explain the work that needs to be put in between now and the day that the, the Terran R rocket launches on this mission? No, it's, it's an incredibly exciting time and, and we're very humbled and excited to partner with Tom Mueller and his team at Impulse. Uh, he's got a lot of incredible experience as the CTO of propulsion from SpaceX. I think one of their early employees there. And um, in fact, Zach Dunn, uh, my colleague actually worked with him very, very closely. And so to, to bring them together for this partnership has is, is been pretty exciting. Um, and I'd say, much of what we're doing for Terran R hasn't changed with respect to the announcement of, of the, the, the partnership with Impulse. Um, it just gives renewed excitement um, and an eagerness for us to set up and build the infrastructure required for Terran R. Mm -hmm. So um, we've, we've got a ton of investment going into our new uh, factory. So we have a, a many different uh, you know, locations at Relativity Space. We have our, our primary facility today in Long Beach, which is about 120,000 square feet. Of, uh, of floor space there. Uh, we recently took over about a year ago, um, the former Boeing C-17 plant uh, across the road from us in, in Long Beach, California. Uh, and we've now activated that and actually started laying down some weld beads for our uh, demonstration articles for, for Terran R on our much larger printers, which are massive. Uh, we haven't unveiled them yet, um, but I'm excited to share it with you as soon as we can, uh, You know where, where things are there. I'd love to give you a tour at some point if you make it out here. Um, but, uh, but our focus now is primarily on building much larger structures, um, increasing the feature capabilities of our printers. And that's actually, again, just going, I'm going to go back to this heartbeat of software and hardware together. Um, we actually look at the Stargate printers that we build as versioned. 
um, so that there is, you know, version three of, of Stargate, which is what has printed the majority of our, our Terran 1 vehicle. Um, and there is version 3.1, which has some additional capabilities, which has additional height and lift and, and, and functionality. Version 3.1.x, which will have other capabilities of data collection. And now we have version four, which is the, the Terran R printers uh, that we've activated development on. And when we look at that, to me, adding the more, uh, sorry, increasing the library of features and things we can do with our wire arc additive is really the exciting piece of solving for the problems of delivering Terran R as a vehicle uh, that can achieve, you know, the 20,000 kilogram payload to, to LEO uh, and will be the vehicle that powers that, that, that mission to Mars. And so I think for us, it doesn't create more complexity in, in, in the vehicle that we're creating per se, um, but it does give us an incredible amount of motivation and excitement towards, you know, uh, this modern race. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to achieve, you know, an industrial base on Mars in the future. Um, and the more companies that are engaged and working towards that mission, I think the better it is for humanity. So it's pretty exciting. Mm. Can I ask, what do you and the, the team at Relativity see as the real significance of the work that you do? And, and the reason I ask that is we did a, a podcast recently, we had Eliana Fu on, on, and she's actually a former employee of Relativity um, before your time. And she was talking with um, a NASA engineer called Paul Gradle um, about the response that they sometimes get when they tell people about the work they do. That's along the lines of why spend time and money exploring space when we have enough problems on Earth to deal with. So how yeah. did, what's the kind of response to that admittedly quite cynical viewpoint? What's the, what's the answer to that from, from your side? I think in a, in a way, um, the exploration of space is a uniquely uniting concept where, you know, people around the world can get a general understanding and excitement of, um, of what can happen when humanity comes together to go beyond ourselves. And I don't know if, who is it, was it Jim Lovell or there was one astronaut who talked about the Apollo effect of, of being out so far away from earth to look back on earth that you realize the concepts of conflict on, on, on our planet are so diminutive mm -hmm. relative to what's out there. And I think there's something very inspiring about a message that says, we're gonna to work together to achieve something great for humanity um, and, and inspires us to wonder what the future might be like. So for me, that holds true for what we're doing at Relativity Space. What I will also say is to be more practical, uh, you know, in, in the concept of cynicism um, is, the technologies that we are working towards will have a unique benefit for humanity, right? Just like we've seen many of the things that we use today were inventions of NASA and other different space programs that have advanced the science of, of modern computing, of modern imaging, every cell phone camera you know, owes their credit to the CMOS sensors that were developed for the space program um, and so on and so forth. There's ad nauseum things that have, have come out of that, uh, that investment. Um, and so for me, when I look at the technologies and the investments we're making in additive, you can imagine that Relativity Space is a company focused today on rockets, but tomorrow could be focused on other products and other applications of um, large scale manufacturing that can be applied to other industries. Um, you know, and in many cases, if we can come up with more advanced technologies for additive manufacturing, especially of large scale systems and eliminate the need for fixed tooling and potentially harmful systems, um, you can reduce waste, you can have a lower carbon footprint, you can have, again, a lot of aspirational goals of sustainability on this planet that can be achieved by inventing and, and developing this technology. So, so for me, 
it's the confluence of the wonderment and kind of the, the unification of space as a concept for humanity. Um, and then also the, the technologies that we're building specifically for very complex vehicles and products today have a direct application uh, for more terrestrial uh, purposes. Finally, then, uh, Relativity has been ambitious from, from the outset um, in terms of, you know, additively manufacturing entire rockets and using them to facilitate space exploration. But what do you guys see as, as the overall goal? I think there's, there's, there's the mission of enabling us to become a multiplanetary species and expand the human experience, right? And that's, I think the first part is a bit generic, right? Which is like, okay, we can become a multiplanetary species. That is a broad statement that I think um, some other people in this industry have as well. Um, but I'm just going to reflect back to my first conversations with Tim, where he really leaned into, Tim being our CEO, uh, where he really leaned into this concept of ex expanding the possibilities for human existence. And in that first interview, um, uh, where we were chatting, he inspired me very deeply by talking about, you know, what would life be like when there are a million people on Mars? Uh, what, what type of poets will exist? What type of art will be created? Um, he goes, I, he's, he, he loves the movie Amelie. And he goes, imagine Amelie, but a Martian and an earthbound, you know, somebody on Mars and, and somebody on earth, what would that long distance love look like? And I'm getting the chills thinking about it now because for, for, for him, it was truly about, you know, how do we expand what it means to be a human? And so there is this long-term aspect of what we are doing as a company, which is to expand the human experience. And we believe that uh, the approach we're taking today for exploration of space is an area to enhance and, and, and to create more capabilities for the human existence. Now, I will also say that, that as being our long-term mission, there are also very uh, various different implementations or interpretations of that mission. I think we're gonna achieve it today by unlocking space for more companies and more people. Um, I, I think we're gonna do that with our ambitions on Mars and building an industrial base on Mars. Right, um, a big part of what we do is is in the additive world and software that we're building. You can envision us having printers on Mars or a lunar surface that can actually print takes and infrastructure to sustain life, um, and that's an incredible challenge for us to build printing technology that will work uh, in a in a Mars-like environment. Um, and so those are, are practical applications. Uh, and then there are other aspects of you know as a, as a as a rocket company. You know, we're certainly uh, hoping to be a very big rocket company. Uh, we are the, the second largest uh, privately funded space company on the planet, uh, which we're very excited about, very humbled to, to be in this position. Um, but, but we also have ambitions to say, how can this technology serve humanity and expand the human experience in other ways? Um, that might come in the form of, of energy products. That might come in the form of other types of industrial applications or transportation here on Earth. And so for us, it's the, the factory operating system and the technology that we're building um, that can really expand um, the human experience both on Mars, potentially, and here on Earth.